0: Welcome to Metabolic Matters Podcast, where we embark on conversations with thought leaders, disruptors, change agents, and passionate souls. Together, we'll delve into what truly matters to them. And you'll learn how to metabolize this newfound wisdom so you can transform your own metabolic health. Now let's meet today's guest. With a profound ability to kindle hope in the hearts of those facing the formidable challenge of illness, Dr. Kelly Turner stands as a testament to the extraordinary power of a human spirit. Dr. Turner's research isn't confined to the sterile corridors of medical facilities. It extends into the untapped reservoirs of optimism residing within each person grappling with illness. Beyond the clinical data and scientific parameters, Dr. Turner delves into the often overlooked realm of human resilience, challenging individuals to explore the uncharted territories of their own potential. Her research, courses, and patient stories, and even as of late, her screenplays resonate a call to action, summons individuals to actively participate in their own well being and embrace the possibility of recovery while navigating the labyrinth of illness with resilience and determination. In a world where the shadows of illness loom large, Dr. Kelly Turner emerges as a guiding force, creating a path woven with threads of hope, inspiration, and the latent strength inherent in the human experience. Through her tireless endeavors, she not only stirs the hearts of those in need, but prompts them to recognize that the journey towards healing is an exploration, a testament embedded with each person's story. And even more empowering is her encouragement and indeed her courage to step into what your deepest desire asks of you. She will undoubtedly inspire you to look within and to align with your highest calling. Aw, I'm so, so grateful and actually a little bit giddy to have you here with me and, and all of us here today. So, Dr. Hello, Kim. hello. I'm so happy to see you all the way down in Mexico. Wow. I know, it's crazy. And I, we were just right before the recording, I was trying to figure out the last time I was physically in your presence. Was it Was it at one of the oncology conferences in New York a few years ago while you were still doing your documentary? It's when we were filming the docuseries Fall
1: of 2019. That was before COVID. Yeah, it was before the world turned upside down.
0: <laughs> it feels like so long ago and yet a snap, you know, in time as well. So. I am so honored to have you here today, and most people who are tuning into this know you or think they know you, and I'm excited to have a conversation with you today to illuminate who you are to maybe people who aren't quite familiar with you and your work, so they get curious and they go back and hunt you down, but I'm also very excited about talking about who you are. Are and what your, what lights you up, what brings you passion and purpose in this world. And the beauty of my experience with you is I've gotten to have some very personal time with you as far as getting to know you in the field that so many of the people who are coming here to listen today know you in, which is the oncology world, the the spontaneous radical remission world, the world of integrative oncology, and and really telling the story of other people's you know, sort of hero's journey, uh, or, or, you know, passion to-purpose journey. So I've gotten to know that. And then I've also had this unbelievable honor of starting to see sort of the real Dr. Kelly start to reveal herself of who you are in this next iteration part of your life, which, to me, is just as compelling and just as exciting and just as inspiring and motivating, and so much that um, I want our listeners to know. Because I kind of sprung this on Kelly um, as well that you know there's this idea that I'm sure you get invited to a lot of podcasts that want to talk about your work with Radical Remission, Radical Hope, the docu series, the Radical Remission Project, your trainings, all of the things that we know and love you for. But I also really think that the thing that is so exciting to me is that you also have another life another story that's being revealed that you're telling through your own life that i'm very excited for people to know because i want people to know that we're never like one thing our identity should not get be you know be brought into what you do as a career or a diagnosis or you know to get to be known as you know like you were even joking we got on oh look you've got long hair that's how long it's been so like i for 20 years i've had short hair so like to mix things up a little bit. And I feel like what we get to talk about today is to show people that we can constantly recreate our lives, our realities, and keep reaching for what lights us up. So I'm giving our our listeners a little heads up, and I'm also giving you a little heads up, because we may turn some directions here in a few moments, but before right. so. I'm here, I'm here for the
1: ride, wherever you want to take us, Nisha, it's your podcast.
0: So excited. Thank you for this. And so Let's just start with where people do recognize you, where there is an understanding of who you are um, and and how you've impacted our lives. So, first of all, the concept of radical remission. Um, It is central to your work. Um, It's central to how most of us know you. It's central to how your work has deeply impacted most of our personal lives. I know for myself in particular and all the thousands of patients I've recommended read your work, but could you just delve in just briefly to kind of the like, um, like how, how would you describe to somebody on an airplane who's never met you before this concept of radical remission and how did you come to get curious about it?
1: That's a great uh, setup because I do often get asked on airplanes, what do you do? <laughs> So I study radical remissions, which the medical community calls spontaneous remissions. And we can talk about why I don't use that word spontaneous, but a radical remission is someone who heals from cancer or another disease against the odds. So a statistically unlikely remission, either from cancer or from something else, such as MS or Alzheimer's or um, heart disease. So I'm really looking at people who beat the odds in a way that their doctors can't explain. So we've all heard of these cases. Some people call them miraculous healings. Some people call them spontaneous healings. After studying these cases for 15 years, I call them radical remissions. And that's because the result is radical, right? It's a totally unexpected result. These people, you know, survived and are here 10 years later when their doctors gave them three months to live. That is radical. That's a radical outcome. But the real reason I choose the word radical is because they make radical life changes in 10 important areas. They are changing themselves from the inside out. They are making 180 shifts in these 10 areas that I call the 10 healing factors. Mm -hmm. And so they have to radically change almost everything about their life in order to have the radical outcome. So that's what I study. I study people who are healing against all odds. I love it. I love it. And
0: you know, when, when, you hear this, or when people first come into your work, you are likely met with some skepticism. Yeah. Right. Okay. So a couple thoughts of like, how, how does this idea challenge the current medical paradigm? How do you sort of meet that skepticism in your own life or how you might uh, train your trainers to meet with this or the, the people who follow you or follow this work? What, 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 what how, how do you show up in that, in that arena?
1: That's a great question. Um, people actually aren't so skeptical about radical missions happening at all. <clears throat> They're just skeptical about them happening as often as I have found that they happen. So I think everyone listening to this has heard of that one person who, you know, was sent home on hospice care and is still here 20 years later, but it seems like a you know, a complete anomaly. It seems like, well, that was just that one person. And that's really where I hope that my research has made a contribution is to show people that these are not just one in a million. Um, There are over 1,000 peer-reviewed cases of radical remission known as spontaneous remission in the journals, in medical journals dating all the way back to 1895. The very first one that was published was in the British Medical Journal in the 1890s. So, and if you go back even further, we have Egyptian papyrus that are (laughs) talking about someone who healed from a tumor, right? So pretty much as far back as we've been writing about medicine, we've actually been writing down cases of spontaneous remission or radical remission. Mm -hmm. And so there are 15, there are over a thousand cases published in medical journals. And then since I began this research 15 years ago, I have found over 500 more that are just completely not published, right? And everyone says, well, why aren't they published? And as you know, the only reason these cases get published is if an oncologist who did not heal this person, right? Their chemotherapy did not work for this person. They sent them home on hospice care. This person may or may not come back to their office a year later. (laughs) And then the oncologist who didn't have anything to do with this recovery, has to have the humility to say, I'm gonna spend about 40 hours of unpaid time on my nights and weekends to write up your detailed case report and pay money to a journal to submit it. Because most people don't know that doctors have to pay money to try to publish their study. So there aren't many oncologists who actually take the time to do that, especially when at the end of this case report, they have to humbly say, I have no idea why this person healed, right? I have no hypothesis. So it's incredibly actually rare for these cases to get published. It just is rare. So the fact that we have over a thousand in the medical journals, well, we probably have more than twice that many floating around the world that are just going there unpublished. And once you get that strength in numbers, you can start doing the research I did, which is to say, well, let me talk to all these people because their doctors don't know why they healed. So let me, let me go straight to the source. Let me ask the patient themselves. Why do you think you healed? Did you make any changes? What did you do? Um, so I think it's it's important as scientists to remember um, that the beginning part of the scientific method is observation. So when we have no hypothesis to test, you have to go back to step one, which is observe. And that's what I've been doing for 15 years. Is I've been observing this very unique group of people and gently asking them open-ended questions like, why do you think you healed? Tell me everything. And what I've learned is that They're doing lots and lots of things to get well. They are trying everything under the sun sometimes to get well. But if I step back and look across all the data, they are doing these 10 things. They have these 10 things in common. Now, that doesn't mean these 10 things will definitely heal anyone's cancer. It means from my observational qualitative research, these are the 10 things that this group appears to have in common that they are um, believing have had an impact on their recovery. And so, you know, my books explain these 10 factors and then call for the next step, which is, of course, clinical trials. And we're working on that. We can talk about the Harvard study later if you'd like.
0: Brilliant. 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 I think one of the things that really stood out to what you just said is so key, which is observation. (laughs) And I'm, I'm so intrigued by the fact that we sort of downplay or ignore that role in the scientific method, which is such a powerful piece. And observation is honestly one of the lost arts of medicine, in my opinion, especially when we are given less and less and less time to be with our patients. And so one of the most amazing things I think you did with your research is you got curious about somebody's story. Absolutely. sat down with them, and started asking, as you said, open-ended questions. I know, because I've read your work, and I've had thousands of other people read your work, how important is being just heard and witnessed to the healing process? Oh, I think
1: it's incredibly important. Um, You know, most of the people I study, they're they're on their own. You know, they're just, sometimes they're really on their own because their friends and family are like, what are you doing? Just give up already, just accept it. Or if, if I'm interviewing someone who is diagnosed officially, so it's not a misdiagnosis. And then they make the personal decision to say, I'd like to do the chemotherapy if I absolutely need to, but can you give me three months to try to just, I know I got to work on my diet. I know I got to work on my stress. Let me try to clean up my life can i have a month or two and sometimes those people take that month or two or three and then they start feeling better and they go back in for chemotherapy and they find out that their blood markers you know their tumor markers are are, are better they're improved or their tumor has shrunk and sometimes they then ask their doctors hey can i have another two months can i have another two months and they never end up needing you know the the standard care the chemotherapy surgery or radiation but during that time their friends and family can be very very scared for them And so what I've, because I interview people after the fact, right after they've healed, after they've been stable for a minimum of two years, they are so happy that I'm finally hearing them and witnessing them. They are, they are so grateful. They're like, you are the first, you know, researcher to or doctor to ever ask me what I did to heal myself. Like, thank you for listening. So it's very important, I think, for them to be heard at that point. But you don't need to be heard during the healing process because most of them weren't. Most of them were just actually fighting against friends and family who were you know, scared for them and trying to trying to tell them you're doing the wrong thing. So um, I, I love the idea of social support. I think that people who are on a healing journey should be heard during the journey. But yeah. I'm here to say if you're not being heard right now in your mid journey, it's okay. That doesn't mean you're not gonna heal. You might end up talking to me or Naysha or someone in a few years, and you might get to tell us your amazing healing journey. And I look forward to hearing it.
0: I love that. And, you know, it was back in 2018 when you and a lot of people in my life really pushed me to share my story in one of your healing, you know, monthly healing stories. Right. And it was very scary for me um, to share that. I mean, a few things who so just to, to reflect back of some experiences that was very vulnerable very intimate. And I still kept it very kind of contained just because it is so personal. Up until 2012, I was virtually not sharing my story anywhere in this world because I was also practicing still until about 2014. And I didn't want my story to influence what path or purpose, you know, people, people took for themselves because I had a very unique and individual path. So what just resonated with me that I didn't even quite recognize is I had a similar experience, first of all, because they told me there wasn't anything they could do. Right. So I was left to my own devices, but I did have someone who was willing to run labs, do imaging and, and do those things at the time. And I feel like I had, it was like that bargaining place that you just described of, okay, a few months more, we'll take a look and see where we are. Yeah. And what happened for me organically, and it wasn't because I was figuring things out, I still am figuring things out 32 years later, but I would kick the can down the road a little bit further and things would just be stable sometimes things would be worse, or sometimes things would be way better. And it wasn't a a linear process, but I, I had someone willing to basically white knuckle support me through the process. And also I did it very privately and personally, because I knew, I, I knew from the few places I would try to share what was going on with me. It overwhelmed other people and their own fear and their own stuff got enmeshed with mine. And I knew that would kill me faster than anything. And so I just wanted to really reflect that back as someone who you you really prodded me to tell and share a lot of my story. And, and it's really helped open that up for me in other places in my life. So I'm really grateful for that. But I'm also really grateful that you just said that too, because clearly I was still here all those years without having that outward support and that knowledge and so many others along the way. So I think that's really, really powerful. What did you learn? What was, what did you learn in the time that radical remission first came out? So this groundbreaking research that you were able to share with the world to say, this is not as rare as we think it is to when you brought out the second book, radical hope what was your biggest learning curve? I have some suspicions because of conversations I had with you in that time frame, but I would love for you to share with the listeners, what was your biggest ahas in the gap between both books?
1: Oh, great question. And not one I'm asked often. Um, I think I had three big ahas. The first was, wow, I am not the only one fascinated by these stories. You know, it, I had been studying this on my own for so many years. It had been 10 years. And I was I was really, you know, the black sheep of my department at UC Berkeley. You know, my, my professor said, you want to study something that no one else is studying? And I was like, yeah. And so I was very alone for those 10 years. And then to have the book come out and to have it have such unexpected widespread appeal and success was really... Um, it just made me happy. I was like, oh, I'm not the only one who thinks the, these cases of incredible healing are cool. you know. <laughs> so I definitely appreciated that there's so many people in this world who want to hear these these true stories of healing against all odds. That was number one. Number two, I started getting flooded with new cases. And I was like, where were you people when I was doing my dissertation research? You know, when I was doing my dissertation research, It wasn't that hard to find cases of rat commission, but it was a little hard. You know, you really had to, you know, network and friends of friends of friends and talk to, you know, the the doctor's nurse's cousin, you know. Um, But I found them. I found all the people that I needed to uh, for my small dissertation study. And it was actually when I started taking the dissertation results around to academic conferences that. Someone said, "You know, you should put up a website and and allow people to share more cases of radical remission because I've got somebody who fits this description." So I put up this very, you know, simple website back then. This was 2010, and just cases started flooding in, and it was it was so easy because I was like, "Wow, I I can study you! I can study you! I didn't even know you existed. Now I can study you." So with very little effort, from really 2010, which is when the dissertation came out you know, we get on average two to three new cases a week into our website. So it's wonderful. I mean, I feel like it's like raining, (laughs) raining gold chips or something. So that was the second aha. It's like, wow, there are so many more cases of radical commission out there that haven't been published. And these people really want to tell a researcher about it. They really, because their doctors were sort of like, wow, I'm happy for you. Good for you. Don't tell anyone in the waiting room, though, because I don't want them to think that this is magically going to happen to them. Um, unfortunately, that's often the messaging that they get, not from everyone. Um, I have such respect for oncologists, but the the inability to explain how and why someone healed leads the oncologist to often err on the side of caution and say, you know what, just, just don't talk about it too much because, you know, it, it's not really explicable yet. We can't explain it. So that was the second aha. Wow. So many more cases out there than we realized. Um, and then you know during the the time period from when the first book Radical Mission came out in twenty fourteen to the second book radical hope twenty twenty um, I was you know being encouraged to write a second book you know the minute the first one came out, and I said, "Well, I've said everything I need to say, you know there's nothing more to say." and as the years went on, I realized, wow, this factor of exercise and movement is coming up over and over again in every case that's coming in through the website. So as a researcher, I had to go back and reanalyze, you know, the first set of cases. And I had to call these people up and say, you know, you said you that you weren't able to exercise or that exercise was not a part of your healing process. I just, I want to double check that. And they were like, yep, no, I couldn't get back to spin class for a year. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, I'm not really talking just about spin class. You know, what about, you know, walking? And they're like, oh yeah, I walked every day. So a you know, big reason why I published Radical Hope is to announce this 10th factor of movement. Um, and I just wanted people to know that really Radical Mission Survivors, even the ones from the first book, they were moving every day. They just weren't calling it exercise because you know, when you're at stage four and you're sent home on hospice care, it is a workout for you to get up and go to the kitchen and come back to the couch. That is the workout. But if you do that every day, and then if the next day you go to the mailbox and back, and that's what radical mission survivors were doing: is they were moving as much as they could every day. So I published um, Radical Hope to really announce the tenth factor and to announce these other cases that were coming into my website that were kind of blowing my mind. Which was, you know, I would get these these cases that came in, and they would said, "Dr. Turner, reading Radical Mission was like reading my diary." I'm like, "Great, yeah, love love hearing that these ten factors were things you were already doing," but they're like. I didn't heal from cancer though. I healed from MS. I didn't heal from cancer. I healed from Alzheimer's. I didn't heal from cancer. I healed from, you know, advanced heart disease where they said I would be dead in six months. And that's when I realized, oh, wow, these 10 common healing factors, these 10 lifestyle changes may not only help a body reverse a condition of cancer, maybe it can help the immune system take care of anything it's got going on. And of course, that's a big hypothesis and it needs to be tested, but certainly Every time we get a case of MS or ALS or um, Parkinson's or heart disease, or you know, you name it, when people are reversing these chronic or sometimes terminal diseases using the same 10 factors, that's important for me as a researcher to say, "Hey guys, the initial data is showing this may not only apply to cancer, it may apply to all diseases." And that's where I'd love to talk with you, Nasha, about you know, this, this sort of common thread here of metabolic health and mitochondrial failure. Because it, I feel like all roads lead back to the mitochondria. I don't know. What do you think?
0: You know, you're kind of preaching to my to this choir here, but exactly because as we're learning more. I mean, what did you what did you learn in school about the mitochondria? Just my, the mitochondria make ATP, right? The factories of the cell. We it produces our energy. That's what we all learned in high school, right? Exactly. Exactly. But what's so amazing, what's so radical to me is we've really started to understand that these little guys are like these sensory input, like they're the sensory receivers of everything. Food, water, light, sound, emotions, relationships, spirit, you know, toxins, anxiety, all the things. They take in all the information. They sort of play with it a little bit, transform it, and then send it out signals to the rest of the body about, okay, with the information you've been giving me, this is what I can send back out to instruct you. And so it's very simplified of what I just described here, but I think that's why you started having people coming out of the woodwork saying these 10 factors helped you know, this condition or this condition and this condition. In fact, every condition you just rattled off are considered metabolic diseases, you know, and at their foundation are some type of miscommunication or misfunctioning at that mitochondrial level. So I really love that. I love that you are are bringing that wisdom into this circle here, that people understand that this is so much bigger than just cancer and it's so much bigger than, and then even just the food. Because that's one of the other things you compelled me when I first met you. And when I had the uh, absolute privilege of coming up and just speaking about sort of the food side of things with you at Omega Institute, one of the coolest things that I saw in your transformation is I think that we're all taught that there's going to be one diet or one supplement protocol or one treatment or one spiritual practice or something that's got the magic. What I think you did really beautifully in your second book is you really opened it up and said, it doesn't even really matter. It's like, what's the intention behind it? And what's the change that was made to bring these new things into your life? I think that's one of the things that you really inspired in me and so many others. And you sort of like gave permission for people to say, I'm doing it the right way for me. Yeah. That was huge. And so that was one of the things I I loved to see with, with your transformation and all of this as well. But I also really love that it's expanded beyond just the oncology world or even that that world that you've you've helped people understand that this is tangible for all of us. And we can get some improvement in our health and well-being. Whether we survive the unsurvivable or, you know, inc- increase our lifespan a little bit or our quality of life a lot a bit, you have brought a new way of thinking about the generation of health, um, the radicalization of health and awareness. And so I just I want people to really like see like those little popcorn awareness moments of you kind of illuminating what you learned between the two things. And I'm going to take us a little bit on a different route. But before I do, one of the things that stands out to me, because I speak all over the world, as I know you do as well. And when I meet people who'd ask me about the blue zones or longevity factors, whenever I lecture on these topics, I'm literally having you and your work and your 10 factors up there on the screen next to the eight or nine drivers of longevity and the eight or nine commonalities of the centenarians or the octogenarians or the blue zones, because there is a common denominator um, to all of that. And I didn't know if you wanted to speak to that a little bit, because first I all, maybe do a quick breakdown, like a boom, 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 boom list of your 10. Yeah. And then maybe talk about, maybe we could flesh out for just a moment the common denominators be- between you know the radical remission folks the longevity folks the blue zone folks because it's really quite elegant how they coordinate
1: yeah it is and and what i love about the blue zone research and the longevity research and um obviously my my research is research these aren't things that i came up with i interviewed many many radical remission survivors and heard what they had done to get well so i'm the researcher i'm just the messenger these aren't my concepts or my ideas of health and wellness. These are what this group of people has done to get well. And if you look at them, and then this is why I put so many studies, other people's studies in my book as citations. All of these 10 healing factors have been shown in independent studies, you know, dating back as far as the early 1900s to significantly enhance the immune system, right? There's no oncologist in the world who's not going to tell you that it's it's a bad idea to clean up your diet and eat more plant-based whole foods. They're not gonna say it's a bad idea to exercise daily. They're not gonna say it's a bad idea re- to reduce stress. So really these 10 common healing factors or these lifestyle changes are a prescription for optimizing the immune system. And that's what we see the people in the blue zones doing. That's what we see in the longevity research. And you can get down into the weeds and talk about mitochondria and telomere length, or you can zoom out and say, How's your stress? How are you sleeping? Right? But no matter where you are in this zoom out or zoom in, we're talking about optimizing your immune system. We have these incredible immune systems. I mean, you know, I have a, a two young kids and they skin their knees all the time. And I'm like, your body's going to heal it. You don't need to tell it what to do. You don't need to tell it to send red blood cells here or make a scab here or cinch together this with white blood cells. We don't have, my kids don't have to tell their knees anything. <laughs> healing just happen. They just need to wait and relax mm-hmm. and not do bad things while it's healing, right? You don't want to rub your, you know, rub your open wound in the dirt, right? So, but our bodies have these immune systems that are designed to come back to healthy homeostasis if we allow it to, if we, if we put those conditions in. And what I think is so amazing about your metabolic research and your metabolic you know, body of work here is just this idea that we have these warning signals from the body that say mitochondria are a little broken here. We need to reset, maybe do a fast, maybe go to ketogenic for a while. We need to reset the system. And you're not just resetting it with a supplement, with a pill, right? It's never that easy. Radical remission survivors, if they've taught me anything, only one of those factors is about a pill, and that's herbs and supplements which by the way, always should be done under the guidance of a healthcare professional. The other nine are not pill related. They take work and they often take inner work, right? So, you know, you said you wanted a list of the factors. Only three of them are physical, right? Diet, number one, herbs and supplements and exercise or movement. Those are the three physical ones. And again, these are all in no order of importance. The other seven are emotional, mental, spiritual. And that takes work, people. That is hard work. The hardest. That is the, I think it's the hardest, right? So many radical mission survivors start with diet because they're like, I got to gotta eat more spinach. I got to eat more kale, Stop junk food. Okay, I know more cookies. And they, because they can latch onto that. And it's something they can do tonight, right? right? But once you've got the diet in shape and once you're doing your daily movement and once you're working with someone like Naysha to take the supplements that your body needs to find a, a, you know, a, a path to homeostasis, Now you got to look at what's going on. How's your stress? How's your happiness? Do you have a reason for living, right? So, you know, the the seven uh, mental, emotional, spiritual factors are increasing positive emotions, super important for your immune system. Releasing suppressed emotions, things like grief, trauma, fear, stress, right? we got to find a way to get those things out of our system. And that is, I think, the hardest of them all, the hardest work of them all. Um, Then you have... You know, more energetic practices, like deepening your spiritual connection practice, whatever that may be, and listening to your intuition, something that we're not told to do in this society, but all radical mission survivors do it. And then other things that relate to why you're doing this, right? Like your sense of empowerment versus just being a victim. Can you move to a place of feeling empowered? Radical mission survivors do that. Can you tap into your reasons for living? And are they strong? Do you want to stay in this body? Do you want to stay with it while it moves from sick to healing? Because it could take a while, right? Do you want to still be here? And then increasing social support um, and feeling not alone and not like you're dying of loneliness because loneliness kills, right? Increasing social support in one study of breast cancer patients um, doubled their lifespan, right? Increased their survival time by a factor of two. So um, social support and finding a way out of loneliness into a place of feeling loved, is uh, incredibly healing. And we can get into oxytocin and why that is, but you could also just zoom out and say, you need it. (laughs)
0: Exactly. It just feels good. It's the right thing. And I love that you highlight this because when I'm speaking to folks, they always want to know like what did I do for my thing? Or they talk to somebody else, one of your other radical remission survivors, and they want to like know exactly what your protocol was and what the pill was and what was at the end of the fork and all of those things. And like you said, that's actually those three factors movement diet, supplements, and herbs, those are very moving targets, very dynamic, very individualized, very um, just dynamic and so unique to each person in each situation. And yet I try to help people understand those tangible things are where we want to start, but they are also not exactly what fixes us. The hardest work, as you alluded to, are those other seven sort of non-tangibles. And that's the work that I, as a doctor, can't do for you, or my colleagues can't do for you and so it's the power of the going inward because so much of our world and even your websites and your books it's like the external fix like everyone's like i'm going to go read this or i'm going to join this or i'm going to take this or i'm going to do this and i'll be fine and they're looking on the outside to do it and yet what you are finding in your studies and what i have found in my career and even down to the the common denominators of longevity research and blue zone research is this sort of inner resilience inner wisdom Inner soul seeking and expression of our best selves, and and being present and on our path and purpose. I think you just hit that so huge, which is the perfect segue. Um, and so, before we dive into your passion and purpose of those ten factors, what two or three do you personally resonate with most that you feel like are most integral to you showing up? On this planet to do what you came here to do
1: oh wow i hesitate to answer that because then people are going to think they're the most important ones
0: caveat this <laughs> this is this is dr kelly's in the moment now of what yeah. she's finding is helpful, and we're all going to have different things at different times
1: i think i think it changes right i mean i think it's important for people to remember that the radical mission survivors i study do all 10 things and even though if you read my books you know in the diet chapter i might talk about You know Bailey and how she really, you know, went on a Gerson diet or something. Or I might talk about Allison who did a ketogenic diet. Mm -hmm. They didn't just do diet; it's not like they did one of the ten factors. They did all ten, but I'm I'm sort of homing in on that aspect for them because that was a very important piece of the puzzle for them. But they did do the other nine, Mm -hmm. and so and it changes over time. Like some Mm -hmm. for some people, the first year of their recovery might be very diet and supplement focused. And then the second year of their recovery might be when they do the emotional and spiritual work. So I can give you a snapshot of where I am today, you know, 2023, but, you know, 10 years ago, I would have had a different three that were most prominent in my life at that time. Right. Like when my babies were little sleep, number one, (laughs) sleep,
0: sleep, sleep, Yes.
1: Yes. you know, which, which for me is all about, um. You know, sleep is about increasing positive emotions and releasing the suppressed emotions of anxiety. Because if you if you found a way to manage your anxiety and if you found a way to have positive emotions, you will sleep better. Um, But anyway, the the three that I think are most important for me right now are um, my strong reasons for living, my spiritual connection practice, um, and for me right now, just because you know, diet's sort of under control and steady, and but uh, movement bringing bringing like strength training and new things into my life that weren't always there. um, That's a big focus for me right now. And it's, it's, I'm finding it very
0: transformative. So that's where
1: I am today. I'll ask me again in six months and it'll probably be
0: such a good thing to point out is it's like, once you even find your 10 things and the priorities of whatever they are for you, they're going to change there. It's like shifting sands. I think that's really great that you alluded to that and that you even shared with us in your own experience. I like you, like, there's certain things like, I don't like diets autopilot for me now. So I don't have to put any energy there. So I have to put energy in all the other things, right? I mean, so that's the place where everybody else kind of knows, well, maybe diets where they're struggling, or maybe the spiritual side is where they're struggling, or even finding that purpose. And so to me, this is where this conversation I'm, I'm very excited to dive into because I recognize that when we are, when we are given accolades for the work we bring to the world, People expect us to continue to deliver in that same fashion and to show up with those same like, okay, what more? I want more. I want more. I want more of that. And as someone who has in my own life and my own career sort of transformed moving from you know, patient to med student to early doctor, you know, very green and, and out there in the world to pretty seasoned and becoming a teacher for other teachers and moving then out of private practice and into consulting and then moving into like, right, you know, becoming an author, now becoming an executive director. Each time I try to put on a new hat, I'm, I'm met with a little bit of resistance. You know, I think internally the resistance is where it starts. So it's the scared of letting go of what I know I do really well and what I I love, but I know that I'm ready to move into something new. But it's also um, not meeting other people's expectations and the response I get from that. And that can be very, very brutal. I will be very honest that some of the hardest hitting times in the last, you know, 10, 15 years for me is when I did want to change the way the world perceived me and do something different with my life to to not for selfish reasons, but to reach more people in a more meaningful way. And the uh hit I've taken for that has been very painful um, to to disappoint people for not staying in the same container they expected me to stay in. And so I'm sure some of those people will hear this. And I've I've had many even over the years come back to me later and apologize to understand why I needed to make the changes that I did. But I know for somebody like you, you have this brilliant ability to collect stories from other people. And you yourself said, like, I didn't expect to be in the cancer space or the chronic illness space. That wasn't really, I kind of learned a few things and shared it with the world. But There's this other side of you that's ready to tell a different story, to use storytelling as a new medium in your life and what gives me chills about this is that this is you truly stepping into the 10 factors of radical living so i kind of got i already feel like i got the next title for your next book um because you're showing us that we are also dynamic and ever-changing in who we are and what we want for ourselves our families our lives so will you tell us about what is happening outside of the radical remission radical hope world because i am just as excited and inspired by the, I mean, you are, can I just say you are so freaking brave. It's so incredible. Like I, I watch you from afar. I fangirl on you from afar. And I am just in awe, if not more so of what this new iteration of your life is becoming to where you've come from. And I'd love for you to share that with our listeners.
1: Oh, thank you, Nish. Thank you for your support. Cause uh, it definitely feels like I'm disappointing people lately. Um, But I think, you know, to bring this back to your listeners, I'm sure there are plenty of people dealing with cancer or another health challenge who feel like they've disappointed themselves mm. um maybe they're maybe they're re- maybe this diagnosis has made them realize you know what my time might be limited and I never ever did this that I've always wanted to do so they might be at a point where they're they're having a reckoning that says now I have cancer and I never got to take my trip around the world or write my novel or do whatever so i think i think there is I'll share with you what's going on with me personally, but I do hope it resonates with your listeners. Um, I also think that there are plenty of radical mission survivors who go through their transformation. And then, you know, five, 10 years later, they say, I'm done talking about cancer. That's old news. I'm on to new thing. I'm an architect now or I'm a pilot now. Let's talk about that. Right. So I do think it's important to honor the fact that we go through these transformations, they change us. And then sometimes, we're changed and we move on. Um, for me, I actually haven't changed. I have been a storyteller my entire life. Mm-hmm. Um, during my my research trip for the Radical Mission Dissertation Research, I was lucky enough to get a grant that allowed me to travel around the world for a year. So I spent a month in um, 10 countries. So it was a 10-month trip. And one of the first places I stopped was the wonderful healing islands of Hawaii, especially the Big Island. And I was uh, interviewing a healer who whose um, clients, patients had had radical remission. So I was not only interviewing the radical remission survivors, but also the healers who helped get them there. And he said something I'll never forget. He said, what I ask all of my patients when they're sick is I say, think back, what did you love to do when you were 11 or 12? And... I was just hit by that because when I was 11 or 12, I was writing stories. I was entering contests for novels. I was um, winning those contests. I was—I wanted to be a screenwriter. I wanted to write movies. I wrote my first screenplay when I was 11 years old. Um, and I came from a very small town in Wisconsin that had no screenwriters. So I, it was it was a long shot, right? But I just knew I wanted to tell visual stories of people who transformed. You know, the hero's journey always really spoke to me about going through this trial, this test and facing death or risking your life to, you know, to, to go on your hero's journey, to, to reach the end, to reach your goal. So I've been writing hero's journey stories. I've been studying Joseph Campbell since I was literally 11. Um, and um, we went from the big island to Kauai and we interviewed another healer. Um, and this was someone who was just very spiritually connected. You could just feel her energy. And we did this great you know hour and a half long interview about cancer patients and and you know what they do to get well and how she works with them right and then I turned off the recording and I packed up my camera because I was filming and then she turns to me and she said, "This is not your life's work, you know that right and I was like but i but because I knew she was right because what I really wanted to do was be writing a screenplay about radical missions." And it's like, it's like she saw my deepest, darkest secret. And I just, I, my eyes started tearing and I'm like, ah, okay. I think I know what you mean. She goes, look, this is important work you're doing and you should keep doing it. But just so you know, your main work is not this. And I went home that night to the hostel that we were staying in, my husband and I, and I started writing the screenplay of open a Ticket. So what many, what you know, Nisha, because you've read it um, and many people don't know is that during that research trip, when I was interviewing all these people, um, instead of being a diligent little PhD student and writing everything up and getting a draft of my dissertation ready, every night I was writing a screen, working on this screenplay. So I came home from that trip with a finished screenplay and no dissertation, like tons and tons of interviews and transcripts that were just like a mountain of like, But I was so inspired by talking to these survivors and hearing it. I wrote this screenplay about a woman who has a radical remission and she ends up using all the 10 factors to get well. So anyway, I very seriously considered not finishing my dissertation and just taking that script to Hollywood and hoping, right, to sell it Um, out of an obligation for the American Cancer Society that funded my research. I did... uh, much to my chagrin, I put that screenplay aside and I um I finished the dissertation. And mm-hmm. after that, I tried to sell that script. I did. I didn't have any connections in Hollywood, but I I called whoever I possibly could. And um I did not want to write radical remission the book. I wanted to make open ended ticket the movie, which is a movie about a woman who has a radical remission. But I could not get anyone to bite and at one of the conferences I was speaking at, somebody said, you know, you should write a book. And I said, Well, mm-hmm. but I really have this screenplay. <laughs> anyway, it's just, it's just sort of not what happened. The universe just sort of sort of very easily put a book deal in my lap. Um, and no one was getting the screenplay because there were two female leads, you know, which back then was a big no-no.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and one of them was a woman of color, which back then in Hollywood was also a big no-no. And I was like, really? Come on, people, this is not this is not the area of era of Jim Crow. Like I this is the vision. I have the woman is a woman of color and she has a radical remission, and I want her to be in this movie. Um, but anyway, I just got a lot of nose for that back then. Then radical mission came out and then suddenly, I mean, talk about being put into a box. I, I was told by my publisher to send in a headshot. So I took a headshot that I felt comfortable with and I was in this, you know, white shirt and I felt like myself. And they were like, oh no, this is um this is not serious enough. Can you can you take more pictures and send us something with a blazer? And I was like, Oh my gosh. Oh. And look, this was my first book. I didn't want to make them upset. So I said, okay. Um, but anyway, I just sort of got pushed into this box of Dr. Kelly Turner, which I'm proud to be. You know, I worked hard for that PhD. have yes, um, I'm I'm very proud of my education and I'm really glad to know quantitative research methods. I'm thrilled to know them. But my heart has always been storytelling. And so, yeah, it was just sort of this whirlwind of being put into the box of Dr. Kelly Turner. And then the book comes out and, you know, all these people who are dying of cancer want me to meet with them individually. And they want me to fly all over the world to speak about my research. And I've got a baby that's breastfeeding. And luckily that I was able to be like, I can't, I've got a baby. But really inside my heart was really sad because I was not screenwriting. Um, and I didn't know how to take this career that was taking off, that so many people would just kill for, you know? And I actually felt really ashamed, really ashamed that here I was a New York Times bestselling author, being flown around the world to, to, to speak about my scientific research. And all I wanted to do was write screenplays. Like it really felt like this shameful secret that I had to keep inside. Um and you know, five years later, you get to a point where you're just like, you know what? <laughs> I just kind of want to live the life I want to live. I don't, I don't need to please people anymore. I've done the book. I've done the second book now. I was really excited to do the docu series because, and I'm so grateful to Hay House, my the publisher of my second book, for funding the docu series. Thank you, Hay House. The uh, docu series is out there at hayhouse.com, but it's it's ten episodes, and it was visual. It was visual storytelling. And of course, you know, that's what moves me the most is visual film. And so um, I'm, I was very excited to do the docu-series. Um, And now we're at a place, you know, the docu-series came out and, and then I was like, well, now what, you know, of course, publishers are saying book three, book three and cancer (laughs) patients are saying, can I see you? Can I see you? Will you, will you start working one-on-one again? And I, I think this is maybe where your listeners can hopefully relate is like, at some point you need to just sit with yourself and say, what do I want? I might disappoint my parents, I might disappoint my children, I might disappoint millions of cancer patients around the world. But I have I have done the research and I've gotten the answers that I wanted to get. I I am I am at peace with my radical commission research. It's it's done. Like it's done. I I had to write Radical Hope to let people know about that 10th factor, but other than that, it's done. And it's beautiful because um it's you know, it keeps getting validated, right? I keep getting st- Cases every week, and they're like, yep, here are the 10 factors, here are the 10 factors. So um last year I I took um I took an opportunity to work with two women who had uh trained in, in our health coach training program who were very eager to, you know, work and and make the Radical Commission project even bigger. And I said, Great, Carla and Liz, why don't you become the co-directors? why don't you guys really take this and run with it? Because I've been doing it for 15 years and I am complete, but cancer patients want more and more and more. They want a podcast. They want an annual conference. They, they're they asking for these things that um, my soul is not ready to give because I just want to be writing screenplays. So in the past six years, I've written six screenplays and I'm very excited and I hope they all get made someday, but they are not, only one of them is about radical remission. And the other five are, in my opinion, beautiful stories of transformation. And some of them are based on true stories and some of them are fictional, but the the common thread is heart opening stories of transformation. That's what I love. That's what I've always loved since I was 11 years old, right? Um, so my, my path in life right now is continuing to tell more stories of transformation, which uh, you know, most of them from now on will not be about radical remission. But what's so wonderful is that this this legacy of the radical remission project lives on without me, which it should. And um, you know, we have 125 health coaches from around the world, from 15 different countries, who are there to work one on one over Zoom with cancer patients who want to have their hands held as they personalize the 10 healing factors for themselves. And I'm like, oh my God, that's so I'm so lucky to have that, you know, I'm so lucky that these people want to spend all day, every day um, immersing themselves in these 10 factors over and over again. For me, after 15 years, I'm complete and I am moved on to other stories of transformation that I think are also really powerful. Um, As you know, right now, I have a short film on the film festival circuit that is, um, it's about a woman finding her power. You know, I think there's a lot of depressed people out there, um, especially depressed women. And there are actually quite a few depressed mothers out there who have lost that spark, lost that sense of, well, who am I if I'm not just taking care of other people? Yes. And so this is a, it's, a, it's an intense story. Uh, it's, you know, it's a fictional thriller movie, but the reason I wrote it is, is because the title character starts in a really low place and then ends up going on this hero's journey to a really awful situation But being, you know, as radical mission survivors get to, getting to that point of being at rock bottom is sometimes what what you need to say, I've lost everything. I might as well risk it all and go for the life I really want to live. And that's what radical mission survivors do. They say, you know what? I'm just going to listen to my intuition. And my intuition is saying, leave this marriage or leave this job and I will figure it out. But yeah. I, if I'm gonna be this sick and this close to death, I might as well make the change that I've been wanting to make forever and have been too scared to make. And the character in um, the, the film, The Housewife, does the same thing. You know, she's, she's, she's put in a very extreme situation and she just has to dig deep and find the power and the intelligence that's been in her all the time, but that was like dampened over years. And so it's really yeah. a film about uh, empowerment, which is one of the 10 factors.
0: It is. Exactly. So first of all, I just, I, if I could just reach out and just hug you so tight, first of all, to get my oxytocin levels up, but two seconds of hugging is all you need. Right, right. Exactly. Right. It's all it takes. But what you just spoke to there, there really, there really is no difference between the work you've done, your storytelling from 11 years old to your research and the collecting and sharing of people's trans life, you know, transformational stories. To moving into this piece, you just—it was like you were the incubator for something else to birth and go on its own path. It's on its own journey, and you are now free to cultivate a new path. And one of the things I think is so extraordinary about your story is that most people—and sadly, this is just what observation is where we started our conversation today—most people have to get to a rock bottom to make that leap to. Truly step into the life that they truly want. And Dr. Kelly, you are extraordinary that you did not have to wait for a terminal diagnosis or something really traumatic and and excruciating and intolerable to push you into this. And you know, and kind of my final question to you: Do you think that perhaps your courage to move into this direction really full-heartedly was thanks to not ever wanting to have to get to that point to make these changes?
1: 100%. If I have learned anything from the incredible Radical Mission Survivors that I've had the true honor and privilege of listening to for the past 15 years, almost all of them say, don't wait until you have cancer to start making these changes these 10 healing factors are here right now most of them are free honestly um the seven mental emotional spiritual ones you can do with yourself with the journal with you know some worksheets um, so you don't need to wait until you hit rock bottom or wait until you have a terrible diagnosis to start improving your life in these 10 areas right and and I I am so grateful that I had been studying radical remission survivors. And the reason I studied them in the first place is because when I first came across that story of Shin Teriyama healing from stage four kidney cancer, I thought, whoa, what a cool story. <laughs> that is a story of transformation that I wanna know more about. I wanna know how that story happened. How did he get from A to B? So really my the thread of my life, which is being obsessed with stories of transformation, that's exactly what led me to study Radical Missions and it's what's leading me now to have these six other screenplays that are also about transformation. Um, but thankfully, you know, as I was being put in that box of researcher, Dr. Kelly Turner, wear a blazer, you know, um, you know, a couple of years into that, I actually felt myself getting sick. I also had two kids under the age of four, so I could have just been very exhausted. <laughs> I, did, I didn't feel well. I didn't feel well. My soul was sad. I felt downtrodden. I felt overwhelmed by all that the cancer community was asking me to give them. And the fact that I had very little to give just because I was taking care of two little kids. Um, And I also knew that deep down, I wanted to be writing screenplays. And it it got to a point where I just wasn't feeling well. And I remember a moment where I thought, remember what Vanessa told you. Vanessa, one of the people I interviewed, don't wait for cancer to be diagnosed for you to make these changes in your life. And I just thought I have to, I have to start walking the walk and that's going to disappoint people because I've got cancer patients who want me to be their one-on-one, you know, counselor right now, but my heart wants to hand this over to someone else and work on screenplays. And so I had to listen to the advice of radical mission survivors and start doing the ten factors again for me, for what I wanted to do. Right. So, diet, herbs, exercise—that's great, right? But for me, those seven factors of like, well, what are my strong reasons for living, and how can I feel empowered right now and not pushed down by the expectations of others? Right. How can I push away what other people are asking me to do and stand in my power and say, this is what I want to do, and I actually don't care what you think, right? Mm-hmm. You know. Being a storyteller for me is not just about writing. Sometimes I actually want to be the storyteller, right? So acting has always been a part of my life, but it's something that I let go uh, after college. And there was a part of my soul that was missing it so much. And I was so scared to let people know that I am a storyteller in all, all senses of the word, because I thought, you know, the public isn't gonna say, well, how can you be Harvard educated PhD, Dr. Kelly Turner and an actress like that? That doesn't work. And then I just remembered what the radical commission survivors have taught me, which is empower yourself. I can be both. I am both deal with it, people. <laughs> um, so, yes, yes. Oh so, yeah, it is. It is honestly, thanks to radical commission survivors for, for reminding me to, to double down on the 10 factors and live my own life. And I mm-hmm. hope that listeners out there, wherever you are in your healing journey or whether, wherever you are in your life journey, go through these 10 factors and just do a little status check and say, how are my positive emotions? Are they abundant? How are my suppressed emotions? Am I dealing with tons of fear and anxiety and stress and trauma? How is my spiritual connection practice? Am I connecting every day to something that clears my mind and makes me feel deeply at peace? Um, I think it's, it's a good wake up call. Like if you're not really feeling all these things, take a moment, take stock of your life and, uh, And double down on them because they're you'll you you your life force energy will thank you for it.
0: Gosh, and your life force energy, I thank you for that because you are you are applying all that you learned from your years of observation, story collecting, and now you get to tell the bigger story—the story of all of your life experiences moving through you, the vessel that you are to share entirely of who you are with the world in all of the things because you are all of those things and you do not and in fact you'll be many more i'm sure before it's all said and done can't and wait that to do that. Mean, nisha. nisha we're
1: all so many things we're not exactly. just one career we're not just one type of person we're not one type of mother we're not one type of partner we are so many things and you can try them all and you can even do some of them at the same time like it's okay. It's not even okay to change. Life is change. Exactly. And life, life will cause you to change. Like uh, you're dealing with a hurricane down there, like you're having to make some changes right now. Like sometimes external forces come and say, you're going to change now. And, and you just got to find a way to um, stay empowered and grounded and centered through this, you know, this boat ride of life that we're going through.
0: Love it. I I feel like just the last 10 minutes of this conversation, were like wrapping all of this up in a beautiful bow. I can't wait to watch and see what you transform and, and transmit into the world. And I can't wait to see what is going to come from this conversation. Because I have a feeling that there are a lot of people that are probably sitting here sobbing right now or, or just empowered or in, like incited to go out and do the thing that they've been.
1: That they've always wanted to do.
0: Yeah. And so, think
1: back to when you were 11 or 12. What did you love to do? Did you play shopkeeper? Did you play with dolls? Were you writing stories like I was? Were you, you know, kicking a soccer ball? What were you doing? And it's, it's, it's exciting for me now as a mother, I have a seven and nine year old to start see there's such different souls. And they're attracted to such different things. And it's fascinating that the words of that healer in Hawaii come back to me of think back to what you love to do when you were 11 or 12. Wow. Can you tap back into that, right? And it's, it's fun for me to see these two children of mine sort of
0: discovering what lights them up. I love it. I love it. I think, I think that's a perfect way to, to end is that let's just, you know, my, my thought, my prayer for everyone listening and for you and your, and your family and all the people that love and follow you is to exactly look for what lights you up. Because that, when we all light up, we, um, we change the world. So I'm really grateful for you, for your time, for your next adventures, and hopefully our paths will continue to cross in in real time as well. Dr. Dr. Haley, thank you so much for your for you.
1: Thank you for having me, Naisha. This was fun. This was crazy, but this was
0: fun. <laughs> right on. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Metabolic Matters. We hope you found today's conversation insightful and empowering. As we wrap up today's episode, we wanna take a moment to acknowledge the incredible team and supporters who make this podcast possible. First, we'd like to thank our production team, Alex Sanchez, Cindy Kennedy, Jessica Gilman, and Lynn Hughes for their hard work behind the scenes. Our theme song was written by Julie Newmark and performed by Whiskey Flower. And finally, we want to thank you, our listeners, for tuning in and being a part of the Metabolic Matters community. Do you want to learn more? Please visit our website, metabolicmatters.org, and you can follow us on Instagram. If you liked this episode, please leave us a review and share it with your friends and family. And if you want to help support our mission, spreading awareness and knowledge about metabolic health reach out. We'd love you to join with us. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our channel and hit the notification bell to stay updated on upcoming episodes. We have so much exciting content coming your way. Until next time, stay curious, stay empowered, and remember your metabolic health matters.